pain and illness can become an all-consuming experience. Hi, and welcome to I Am Not My Pain podcast. I am your host, Melissa, a chronic pain sufferer for over 20 years, and I know firsthand how pain can easily take over your life and isolate you from others. But the truth is, we are so much more than our pain and illness, and we are not alone. There are millions of fellow warriors on their own journey. Join me as we hear real stories of people living with pain and illness, their challenges, their victories, and the treatments they use to get through the day. I am not my pain, and neither are you. Before the podcast begins, I just wanted to make a note that this podcast was recorded before the overturn of Roe versus Wade. Let's tune in to Sarah Max's story and her perspective of being a chronically ill woman in today's healthcare system. Welcome back to I Am Not My Pain podcast. Today, we're going to discuss being a woman and being chronically ill. I know I felt a difference just going off my own personal experience. I had doctors brush off my symptoms as stress or as me being overly emotional when I honestly was just upset that the doctor was either not listening or not offering any good solutions. Did you know women have only been included in medical studies since 1986? I did not know that until recently. I'm going to say that again, 1986. Research for women has been understudied and underfunded. However, the studies that are out there now show that there is a gender bias, which is still very much there in healthcare. According to a survey conducted in 2019 by Today, a woman who presents with the same condition as a man may not receive the same evidence-based care, especially in areas of cardiac care and pain management. The Cleveland Clinic states women are more predisposed to musculoskeletal pain, abdominal pain, headaches due to our hormones, puberty, reproductive status, and menstrual cycle. And there is data to support that women tend to have a higher pain tolerance than men. And yet women's pain is more likely to be undertreated, misdiagnosed, or dismissed. To discuss this topic further, I want to introduce my warrior for today's show, Sarah Max. As a child, Sarah Max experienced mental illness, including OCD, and as an adult, she was diagnosed with celiac disease, epilepsy, psoriatic arthritis, and lupus. She knows firsthand how being a woman can affect how a medical establishment views and treats you and is working hard to advocate for herself and for others. She is a supportive employment counselor for adults with developmental disabilities and an advocate for chronic illness. Thank you so much for joining me today and discussing this topic. Sarah Max, why don't you share a little of your story with us and kind of what you manage right now? Yeah, thanks, Melissa. I wasn't actually diagnosed with epilepsy for a long time. Um, Mm. I think I remember my first seizure being around when I was nine years old. My mom found me in the bathtub with my hair all cut up in the the drain. The drain, yeah, and I and I ended up with bruises all over my body. My best friend was sleeping over, and she started crying, and nobody understood what it was. And then in college, um, my boyfriend witnessed me having a seizure, and I peed myself, which is very common during seizures. And we went to see, and um, this isn't even, I, I wouldn't, I don't think of it as chronic illness, but he 
wouldn't, he dismissed it and said it wasn't epilepsy. And I continued to have seizures for a while before I was diagnosed. I started becoming symptomatic with celiac disease in high school, in high school, but I wasn't diagnosed until college. And then later, when I was started presenting with symptoms of lupus, which was in my 20s, I had a better understanding of the fact that like doctors don't look for underlying causes. So I advocated a a little bit harder. I understood that like doctors aren't going to do it for you, but it's still very difficult. And I still, it was still a real struggle to get to somebody who's going to sort of do the detective work because I didn't know what it was. I just knew I was experiencing all this pain. Now I know I do really love my rheumatologist. Nobody knows what a rheumatologist is until you have one. Nobody knows to ask for a rheumatologist. And I do social work full time. I work with adults with disabilities, like you said, who want to work, which is an extremely meaningful mission for me as because knowing what it's like to have a disability and want to work, I understand the, how meaningful work is, especially when you struggle to do it and how meaningful it is. And I, I work in customized employment with them. So how meaningful it is to find the job that you can do that is built for you. Um, that's where I am right now. And I guess it's very difficult for me because I can't work all the time. I have to build my life around my pain, my functionality, and still be supporting a caseload of people. I was a teacher for 11 years beforehand, a preschool teacher, but that's a primary caregiver position. And being that I can't be reliable to do the same hours every day, I had to give that up as much as I loved it just because it wouldn't be fair to the children. Right. Only 35% of people with lupus are even able to work full time. And I feel very blessed to be able, I feel very blessed to be one of them. But it is also so challenging and it takes up so much of your life that every moment you're not working is just you recovering from working. You know, we have to kind of recover on those days off and take our, let our body take a minute to, yeah, to recuperate. So do you have any examples or personal experiences where you felt maybe misunderstood or, you know, kind of looked at differently because you're a woman or maybe a little bit more dismissed when you did go to the doctor? When I was you know, trying to get diagnosed with celiac when mm-hmm. I was a teenager, I, you know, my dad has colitis, which is also an autoimmune disease. And doctors didn't even think to check for that, even though my dad has an autoimmune disease, which is rare for men. To nine out of 10 people with autoimmune diseases are women. And all I got from his doctors was it must be IBS it, or they or they told me take Metamucil. It was never like, let's 
let's look if it's an autoimmune disease for her, you know, where like my dad has an autoimmune disease. Autoimmune diseases are genetic. Why aren't you checking if I have an autoimmune disease? Like, why aren't you checking, doing anything to see if I have an autoimmune disease? When you're my dad's doctor, you know he has one. So that felt a little dismissive, you know, and I had a lot of symptoms but I lost like 30, 40 pounds pretty mm. quickly. And my, my, my dad was like, you know, put a bag over her head. She's like a horse, you know? So he, he knew something was wrong. Yeah. He knew there was something going on and wanted to figure it out. And it was just like, Oh, you know, take some Metamucil, take some, this, take some that. It's like, that's not going to solve this pain and malnourishment you know I'm having and which eventually became like terrible symptoms I was in the ER like every other day I was my my nails were falling out like tons of fungal infections because it goes on long enough you your body's completely malnourished um but you know celiac disease when it's it's the easiest of the autoimmune diseases you just stop eating it and the symptoms go away I, I, I wish I could go back to those days when I thought right. you were like just if I could just not eat that and be perfectly healthy then I would do that but that's true but that is interesting that it took I mean how long do you think it took from when you started presenting with symptoms until you were diagnosed um, it must have been, so I started presenting maybe around my sophomore, junior year of high school. Mm-hmm. I took a year off after high school, so three years, and it wasn't until like my junior year, so five or six years. That's crazy. That's that's a long time to not know, yeah. <laughs> to be malnourished and having to go to the hospital that what did the hospital do when you went to the hospital? Like what were they treating? I mean, were they just treating the malnourishment? They weren't really looking at the cause, but they were like, here, let's feed you. They were just, yeah, they just treated whatever specific symptom I was coming in with. Like if it was uh, like, sometimes it was feminine stuff. Sometimes I was having vaginal issues. Sometimes I was having oral issues. Sometimes I was having, it could, I mean, it could be anything because when, once you're that malnourished, like it creeps up in all kinds my body just couldn't fight anything off. Like it was having all sorts of problems. You know, people think celiac is going to present as stomach aches, which I, I did have a lot of digestive pain, but once you've gone that long without being diagnosed, it presents in so many ways that don't look like stomach problems. So mm-hmm. They were just, I was just, they were just addressing the symptoms and not looking for anything deeper as continued to be the case with lupus and psoriatic arthritis for so long, once those started becoming symptomatic. I know. And you said something interesting because it really resonated with me. You know, you were able to self-advocate more when you were in your twenties for, you know, the diagnosis. And I remember one doctor just told me uh, with my headaches early on, when I started getting them that I was, it was from stress and I needed some psychological help. And I'm not saying, and I wasn't, I was like, but I'm not stressed. Like I don't feel stressed, but he didn't. I mean, it was like, he completely was like, "Mm, yeah, you're stressed. 
And I was like, but I don't feel stressed. And about yeah. three months later, I started falling down. I started having issues with weakness in my arms and legs. And that's when we did an MRI and found an Arnold Chiari brain malformation. I Oh, it took oh, everything yeah. I had not to go back to that doctor and be like, see, I told you it was not stress. And yeah. I don't think stress doesn't cause problems. It does. It's a big problem. But, you know, that doctor just wrote it off. And I had a tendency to be like, oh, well, I guess he's right. Like at the time, I honestly just wrote it off like, oh, he's right. I'm wrong. Something must not be that wrong. But that just shows you. And then, you know, later I realized, okay, doctors as well-intended as some of them are and, but they don't know they're not living in your body and you have to fight for what you need for your answers. And it's not a fun thing, but I do feel like women, we get chucked into that category faster of you're being over-emotional, overstressed. You know, it's, it's more emotionally based stuff than then I feel like men get, and there's so many examples of men in my life where their pain, I mean, it was like, something is very wrong with you, sir. Like, let's get you help right away. And then I'd go and it was like, eh, you know, you know, I just maybe take some muscle relaxer and you'll be fine. Yeah. Take a Valium, take a muscle relaxer. And like, it's also, and again, like 80 to 90% of people with autoimmune diseases are women. Like, yeah. And there are other chronic illnesses, but like the fact that like autoimmune diseases make up a lot of them means that like most people suffering these types of underlying conditions are women and men aren't, and men like, and and they're not happening to men's bodies. Like we need to understand women's bodies better. And I know that like, for me, like I, I, you know, because at this point I had epilepsy, I had a primary care doctor a neurologist and a psychiatrist creeping up slowly with the lupus symptoms. I didn't understand what was happening. Like mm-hmm. I, I went from teaching a whole day, being very active to teaching a half day, not being able to like go to the gym anymore, like needing to sleep the rest of the day, not being able to go out with friends anymore. And my psychiatrist, and they were severe. And I would go to the urgent care all the time thinking, how did I, how did I injure this? And like getting like splints because it was my muscular skeletal pain and Mm -hmm. I didn't understand what it was and this exhaustion and I was becoming depressed I was becoming unhappy with work which was a job I loved and my therapist kept telling me you know well I think that your your symptoms are because you're stressed and depressed and I was like no I'm stressed and depressed because I'm sick Mm -hmm. and would not hear it. And the thing is, I was like, you know, that I have had struggled with anxiety and obsessive compulsive disorder since I was six years old. I know how it manifests for me. And it is not physically. And like, the day that I got my diagnosis, I told him, I was like, you, this is your problem. Like, you need like, you will not become a better psychiatrist unless you know how to trust your patients when they tell you they know themselves. Cause like, and that's, that's a, like, it's not uncommon for doctors to think they, they understand your symptoms better than you do. It's not all doctors, no, but no. like. It's, yeah, this is it not a doctor bashing show. I mean, we're not trying to bash all doctors. Not all doctors are like this. We know. 
it's still very prevalent in in the medical play. I mean, honestly, it really is in psychiatry and I have found in pain management. And I don't know about autoimmune and rheumatology because I think some doctors think rheumatologists is a bunch of hogwash. So many people are affected by rheumatic autoimmune diseases like RA, psoriatic arthritis, lupus. There's a ton more. I can't even name them all, but I just know like from being in different support groups, there's a lot of rheumatic conditions and also like comorbidities with other auto when you have them with other autoimmune diseases and other not autoimmune diseases. Like, I don't know. And I mean, even good doctors, like I had a great primary care doctor and she believed every time I went with her to her with a symptom or complaint, she did believe it was real. She diagnosed it correctly. Like I had costochondritis, the tissue of your, the rib cage that connects to your lungs gets inflamed. It's a connective tissue issue. And like, um, lots of other things. And she would advocate for me as much as she could, but, but wouldn't quite believe that maybe there was something more going on. And what was interesting about that was, you know, for me, I was like, how do I, I know something more is going on. And I didn't know to ask for a rheumatologist. So I, I, I said to her, my dad would feel much better if you sent me to an immunologist just to have them look at me because I knew this probably had to do with my immune system, mm-hmm. but I didn't know, like, I didn't know who to see, but like, and I felt like, you know, me asking to see somebody isn't enough. So I said, my dad would feel better. And I felt like, you know, bringing a man into the equation was what got me to the immunologist. Mm-hmm. And then I was, and then the immunologist was like, I don't do autoimmune stuff, but I had saved everything, every like piece of paper from every like urgent care visit, from every from every emergency room, from every, everything. I'd saved it all. I brought it with me. Um, the immunologist did like some blood work, and you know, like with autoimmune stuff, your ANA blood tests, like some. Sometimes it can be a little high, but it fluctuates, which is another problem. Some people get dismissed saying you don't have an autoimmune disease because your ANA isn't high enough right now, mm-hmm. but it fluctuates. Mine was just, mine at the first time, it was just in that range where it's high, but can be considered normal. Then, but she knew that that was like, it was like thank, she knew me, but she was like, I think you have rheumatic autoimmune disease. And so she told my doctor that, and then my doctor sent me to a rheumatologist and my ANA was higher then. Um, and then I got, and she spent a long time diagnosing me first thought, you know, she says she's really good and didn't want to jump the gun. And mm-hmm. she eventually diagnosed me with lupus and then psoriatic arthritis as well. Like everything, every part of my body was falling apart and in all sorts of different ways and then there's the fatigue there's the brain fog like the things that people can't quite grasp that aren't physical pain like that aren't like in one part of your body right right that's yeah and I mean I was gonna ask you know how did you 
obviously address the challenges of when doctors, you know, were not listening and so forth. And so it was interesting. You kind of answered it in the sense of using your dad's concern and also kind of being a man to influence that decision, which is crazy that you had to do that. But uh, that was very smart on your part at the time to push push a little bit. Because honestly, sometimes we just, like you said, we don't know what's wrong with us. All we know is our symptoms. And now we've got Google and sometimes that can be a plus or a minus because then we come in and we're like, we've got, you know, 80,000 things wrong. But at the same time, we just know, hey, this is hurting. This is what's bothering us. And we trust the doctor to kind of do more investigation. And sometimes they do. And sometimes they don't. And, and then sometimes they don't. And they I mean, I, and it's, you know, like she was a woman doctor. She, she trusted me. And what the thing is, it's, it's the whole medical field that that doesn't know because it's that the whole medical field is still basing health on men's bodies. And it's a huge problem because a lot of these conditions affect mainly women and to understand any of this stuff means understanding the woman's body as a whole. And I don't think health looks as women's bodies as a whole. So many of us make choices based on our entire health, you know, like having lupus, like, you know, and like, it, it, it's hard because you think about things like, do I want to have a baby? There's a lot of things that can happen if you have, like, when you think, when you're making that decision, like, there's a higher incidence of premature birth, stillborn birth. Babies can be born with neonatal lupus or a heart block. For some people with lupus, certain proteins in the blood can increase the chance of miscarriage. After pregnancy, some women develop preeclampsia, like just after giving birth. And also there's like a lot of issues like, you know, some of the first line in defense with like lupus, psoriatic arthritis, RA, like are um, like hydroxychloroquine, which was a huge thing during the pandemic because there was a big shortage. There was an overprescript, like people were overprescribing it, weren't really sure what it did or what it was supposed to help with, which turned out to be nothing. But it was, again, that mainly affected women because they weren't able to get it. And that's actually what prevents lupus from progressing and getting to your organs. And the other first line of defense is methotrexate for all of these like autoimmune diseases. And that's a, a chemotherapy treatment, which is, it helped, it's like, it's an immune suppressant. So it helps prevent your body from attacking itself. But it's, but like, you can't, take it while pregnant. And for me, that's been the most effective in helping me be able to do anything, to be functional at all. But you can't take it if you want to have a child. So like if I were to want to have a child, I would be completely debilitated. So it's like, you know, all these things are so connected. Like when like you're looking at a woman's body, like our susceptibility to autoimmune diseases or other chronic conditions, the medicines we take, like 
our choices about whether or not we're going to have like give birth. Honestly, also like whether or not we feel we're in a position to raise a child, because I know a lot Mm. of people in my support groups, they, they struggle just with the guilt of feeling like they can't be or aren't a good enough mother. And that, or like if they can't pick up their child because they're in pain or don't feel they can play well enough or don't feel they're cooking enough, you know, it's just all these struggles that affect the choice of whether or not you want to bear a child, the choice of whether or not you feel you're going to be able to raise a child or if you're, or like you have children and then all of a sudden develop these symptoms, the guilt you feel around. It's very, I think, you know, there's this prevalence among women to get these illnesses, the lack of ability to be diagnosed and treated properly. And then, you know, being a woman and how that relates to carrying a baby, having children, and also the fact that like women are largely the caregivers of the world, the teachers, mm-hmm. the nurses, the, the social workers. It's very, you know, it's it's this web of like interconnected things. And then our meanwhile, our bodies are not being looked at or considered objects that deserve to be treated as medical bodies. You know, I knew that we were under-researched. I just didn't realize how much. And the reason they said that they didn't used to research, didn't include women in studies, was because of the hormonal aspect, because they thought that it wouldn't uh, make an effective study because we had other issues and we weren't, you know, set. And I was like, "Uh, uh, well, the reason we need these studies is so we understand our body and all those things. So they didn't like it because they couldn't get a clear picture or get their study out and have an effective, you know, a real statistic that they could use. But the statistic was skewed only towards men because women were not involved in the study. So that was flooring. And then of course, you know, we still have, I mean, hysteria, I think was just taken out of like a medical journal, like in 1950 or something. But hysteria was still taught to doctors for a long, long time. And I think that has something to do with it. And now there are more women doctors, which is great, but I still think there is, but I still think there is such a bias, even when the doctors are teaching other doctors on it's just, it's, there's still so much out there that needs help. And we still need so much, so much studying about the hormonal. I mean, cause not only like you're saying, like with a baby, but we go through menopause and our hormones are constantly changing. <laughs> and right. especially with your type of condition, that's so important to know what's going on at all times with your hormones. And so there's so much that still needs to be known and so much that still needs to be done. And hopefully it will get done with voices like yours and others that are saying, hey, we are, we're dying for research. We're dying for, you know, studies and things that we can look at. So we know how to treat our own selves. And because we do want children, we want we want normalcy in our lives and we want we want healthy children like we really want to have healthy children and 
like, and we want to be healthy enough to raise children. We want to be healthy enough to have children or to not have them. But like, you know, if we don't want to, but, you know, we want to make, we want to be able to make that informed choice for ourselves and have healthy options. And right now, a lot of people in the, in this community don't have a, a healthy option. And, that, and like, like you were saying, we're dying for research. Some people are dying because of lack of research. Yeah. It's, it's, yes, it's, it is definitely a real, a real problem. And yeah. And like you're saying to you, like, you know, having about our hormones, like everyone I know who has lupus or psoriatic arthritis, like everyone, which are mostly women, um, always flare up during mm-hmm. that time of the month. But like, if you talk to doctors about it, they'll be like, no, that your like your period doesn't affect it. And, but like anyone who has it will be like, yes, it affects mm-hmm. it. And it's like, so like, you know, like where, where that, why is there that disconnect? Because like, I, I've not met anyone, no one in my, no one in the support groups I go to will say, oh, it doesn't get worse when I have my period, like, or maybe one out of every 20, I don't know, but like almost every woman I know will say, yeah, like the rashes get worse, the joint pain gets worse, the fatigue get worse, the, like basically every symptom you have gets worse. My, my rheumatologist who I could not ask for a better rheumatologist mm-hmm. says it's, 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 no, there's no reason it would get worse around your period. But again, if eight out of if eight to 9% of the people who have autoimmune disorders are women, there seems to be some connection between hormones. And like, if, if everybody's experiencing, like if everyone I know is experiencing, again, like I can only speak from experience, like, but it gets so much worse around your period. And it's, and that's something that women have (laughs) there's like it doesn't seem so disconnected and like and you know it it makes sense too I mean in a way it it does because of how the body works so it's interesting that they would dismiss that option and maybe instead of dismissing it they could say maybe there's we don't know everything about this uh disorder and there's a possibility I mean but they don't like to do that they don't like to say until there's hardcore evidence, but there's not a lot of ability to get that evidence for the doctor to say, oh yes, you know, we've studied it, we've seen it, that it it is affected. And, but I wish they would leave, I wish doctors would leave a little space for, it's science, you know, science is not set in stone, we're learning new things every day. And so isn't it possible, you know, is it possible that it could be that? I know, like, so for me, one of the benefits at work I get is our our FSA card, like, where we get um, untaxed money for health, healthcare, like, health, like, you know, healthcare products, prescription drugs, band-aid, probably even condoms, but tampons are not covered as a medical need. And one of the people on my caseload, one young woman, uh, she's on Medicaid. You know, a lot of people with disabilities are. That's how they get their services from us. Um, and part of the Medicaid, they cover, they have, give some money to cover medical products. 
they do not cover her tampons. Again, like these, these things are not coincidences. They like, we are not viewed as women. Our bodies are not viewed or treated as medical. Like we can go in and say, these are our bodies. These are our things. They're not treated that way. Like we are not viewed that way. (laughs) And it's just, like by society overall it's just and and it's hindering research it's and I think it's you know they feed each other like Mm -hmm. if research went into uh, if there was more research done about women's bodies that would influence how doctors viewed us it would probably influence how society fed back and vice versa like it's it's a whole I don't know I don't want to call it power and having that knowledge of women's bodies gives us power in society. It gives us power in the medical community because it's more believed and more understood. I mean, that's the thing is we need, our bodies need to be more understood by the medical community and by society as a whole. And the only way to do that is to have these, this research out there to really help tampon thing is, is just still a mind blowing. That's mind blowing. It's just, the uh, the lack of the lack of interest the lack of mm-hmm. desire lack of the lack of motivation to give women knowledge con- and control over their bodies the lack of it's just it's it's harmful it's harmful to women it's harmful to children it's harmful to society and it's not just a woman's problem it's everybody's problem and like everybody needs to start viewing women as autonomous and as humans with their whole own different bodies than men that need to be viewed as human bodies that Mm -hmm. are their own like ecosystems and need to be treated as entire ecosystems, not just as different parts. Mm -hmm. Well, this has been amazing. We of course have, I knew we could talk on this all day, but thank you so much for coming on to talk about this. It's, we want to speak out on that because that's how changes get made. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, I, it's really important to just keep spreading awareness, um, chronic illness in general, tied to the stuff tied to women's rights. <laughs> like it's everything. You can also uh, read some of Sarah Max's articles. I will put one of them in the episode description. It's a wonderful article called "When Working Full Time with Chronic Illness Leaves Me Chronically Choosing." and that couldn't be more true. And thank you again, Sarah Maxson. Thank you to all my listeners for tuning in. And I hope you tune in next week to another amazing warrior. And remember, you are not alone and you are not your pain. Like the show, please subscribe and leave a review. Or do you wanna be a guest? Simply email notmypain at heroescircle.org. Again, that is notmypain at heroes, H-E-R-O-E-S, circle.org. Your story matters, and we look forward to hearing from you. Hi, this is Keith. 
I am a martial arts therapist at the Hero Circle, a global healing and wellness initiative inspired by the children of kids kicking cancer. Would you like to discover the power of your breath while fueling the purpose of thousands of sick children across the globe? Simply check out our free adult meditation catalog at herocircle.org forward slash meditations. To learn more about our program and our inspirational little heroes, visit our website at herocircle.org. From all of us at the Hero Circle, we wish you a wonderful day. Power, peace, purpose.